Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 103, World War II Action. Yes, uh, the third, the midway point, actually, in our uh, series yeah. on World War II and World War II films, um, both made in and about the era. And we are talking today about movies that focus on the battles of the war at the nitty gritty level, the action. All that across we see. the war, too, which I don't think I really planned, but we've got. Western Front, Eastern no, Front, and the Pacific War. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're all across the board. There, there were several other theaters, but those are probably the three biggest. Um, yeah, right. Uh, easily the three biggest, actually, um, in the war. And three different types of movies to go into them. Uh, the first of which is a classic Hollywood fair number uh, by the name of The Great Escape from 1963. It was directed by John Sturges. Um one of the really skilled kind of journeyman directors of the era who did a lot of really solid work, but isn't, you know, as well known by modern uh, film scholar or modern film students and film aficionados, I right. would say. Once you get into like the once you start really diving down, you see that like the French New Wave really likes Sturges and stuff like that. And he has a lot of work like this specifically. Yeah. But we have but covered the Magnificent Seven. So, yeah, yeah, uh, he's he's really good with. Uh, stuff like that. You, you're typically um, <clears throat> a masculine action fair epics. So um, Steve and this McQueen was, movies. Yeah, yes, very much so. <laughs> um, and this was based on both the actual event, The Great Escape, which was a real thing that happened during World War II, um, and the 1950 book about the event, which was written by Paul Brickhill. Um, and it actually received a Oscar nomination for Best Editing. Oh, that's it? Yep, that's, that's it. Surprising. That's it, which is actually really surprising. Um, 1963 is actually, I think, a pretty good year for the Oscars, comparatively. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of fare going on right there. But this is definitely like a blockbuster of the day. This is as close, one of the things that you get as close to like a um, superhero movie of the 1960s. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, absolutely. This is meant to entertain. It's meant to be big and flashy, but it's not necessarily meant to be high art. Um, and yeah. that kind of shows in the number of Oscar nominations that it received. Yeah, and then second up, we have Come and See from 1985, directed by Alem Klimov. Uh, it's a Russian film uh, written with Alice Adam Adamovich. Alice who, Adamovich. Uh, actually, Alice Adamovich who actually fought in the Belarusian, uh, with the Belarusian partisans, which is uh, what the film is about, as we'll see. Um, and the title of the film, which, you know, it's not really ever brought up within the film, but it comes from uh, the sixth chapter of uh, Revelation or the Apocalypse of John about the fourth horseman, uh, Death. Um, so that's a very ominous beginning, and we'll get into uh, how... All the stuff that happens in that movie, because that yeah, that one is uh, it's a heavy movie. It's accurate. Yeah, right. Uh, finally, we're going to talk about The Thin Red Line from 1998, which is uh, by director Ta Terrence Malick. Um, and it's kind of like the first in his newer, um, in his return to cinema, so to speak. You can kind of break up his film into two eras, and this is kind of his new style. It's very similar to Hidden Life, which we talked about on the bonus podcast in terms of style. Yeah. Um, and it is based on a 1962 novel of the same name by James Jones. And it received a lot of nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Editing, and Best Original Score. 
Um, no wins. No wins. That that's that's, that's kind of the history of Terrence Malick. He he likes doing his own thing, even though it's not necessarily what everybody else one hundred percent loves. And a lot of his yeah, movies right. typically get the review of "I really liked it." I don't think it knew what it was about, but it really liked it. <laughs> um, so, and we'll we'll get into that when we get into that movie individually. Uh, but first, we have t- two other movies to get through. And Jason, take it away with the summary for The Great Escape from 1963. The Great Escape from 1963. It is the duty of any captured Allied officer to try to escape their captors. It is important to drain the Nazis of as many resources as possible, and with any luck, to actually return across the battle lines. The Nazis have collected the biggest escape risks among their POWs and corralled them into a new state-of-the-art high-security prisoner camp. So the prisoners, led by RAF squadron leader Roger Bertlett, concoct an even bigger plan, dig three giant escape tunnels and break 250 men out of the camp. A project so big, it'll be difficult to hide, and it'll take a supreme amount of coordination and teamwork to dig, scrounge, build, sew, forge, and blackmail their way out of camp. At the same time, the camp threatens to be turned over from the Geneva Convention-abiding Luftwaffe to the dangerous SS. It's a race against the clock and a challenge against the Nazis and the officers' own inner demons to make a great escape. So this is obviously based on real events. And it's interesting the way they break this movie down because it is a three-hour movie. And basically the first two hours are spent preparing to escape. And then the last hour is spent escaping. Um. And that's a lot of time and screen time yeah, to get through. Pretty much. And a lot of the entertainment in this film comes from the, uh, like the nitty gritty process and trickery and like essentially MacGyver style entertainment of rigging stuff you together from nothing. Kind of like the same entertainment you get from something like MacGyver or Gilligan's Island in the sense of what can you do if you only have dirt and like the slats from a bed? How can you put that together? Um, which you is know what really I interesting. Of- yeah. Throughout this whole movie, I kept thinking that this is basically a bank heist movie without, you know, going against the law. It's like they're actually trying to. Yeah, it's like the good version of a, a, a bank heist because everyone has a role. Um, and they've like from the very beginning, you get the sense that all these prisoners know each other. They've been transferred around to different camps. They've been in the same camps before. Um, so nobody ever shows up at the camp and they're like, who are you? They're like, oh, hey. You finally made it over to where we are. Um, and then they're like, all right, so uh, we have a forger. We have a, a digger. We have um, the lookout. Like, everyone has a job to do, kind of like that. Like you get the sense in organized crime movies where everyone, like, you know, we need a driver. We need a, um, a lookout. We need the, the uh, safe expert, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And I thought that that was really interesting that, that that structure carried over into this escape movie, which I never thought of those two in the same kind of category before. Yeah, yeah, and it's very, um, it's very, it's very upbeat and peppy for a lot of it. It does get into yeah. those dark, dark moments where you know somebody dies trying to escape, um, or you know, at the, when you get to the very end and everything falls apart. But a yeah. lot of it is like this very upbeat kind of peppy uh, style of entertainment, which doesn't necessarily match a lot of the World War II fare that we see. And a lot of that, I think, yeah. comes from the fact that this is a classic Hollywood movie. 
essentially it's a blockbuster. It's a little bit of a star a vehicle. Of that, yeah, yeah uh, it's got that Hollywood gloss on it from the classical mm-hmm. era. Like, everybody comes into the camp. They've all either been captured or transferred from other camps, and they all start off looking way too clean. Just way, <laughs> right. way cleaner than they ought to be. Um, you know, And you kind of get the sense that the, the Nazis are a little soft too yes yeah Um, and that actually that actually takes me to another point that i really enjoy about this movie and that's that there are both the antagonistic side and the protagonistic side in this movie are fractured there are factions within them um Mm -hmm. you know on the german side the camp is being run by the luftwaffe um who are ostensibly trying to be good about it um i don't know how much i really believe that but sure um and then there are the SS agents who are trying to come in and be much, much harsher. And they take over by the end yeah. of the movie. And then on the protagonistic side, you have a bunch of... Uh, you have the Americans, you have the British. Um, and then, of course, you have the wild cards like Steve McQueen, who it takes some wrangling from Richard, Richard Attenborough's character in order to get him into line. Um, mm-hmm. Which, one, makes all these people feel a lot more fleshed out and a lot less black and white um although by the end it definitely becomes that way it resolves itself that way but it provides a lot of interest um and drama on screen to get us through those first two hours in a very entertaining fashion yeah and they do a good job of kind of uh splicing up those little segments of you know kind of everyday life and then the the digging sec uh sections and the everything that they have to do to prepare uh, to get out, um, and even like adding in those, those darker elements, uh, the, the scene of the character, um, who gets shot down trying to scale the barbed wire fence comes Uh, right at the end. Yeah. So it comes right at the end is that he's an informant. He's a mole that he digs really fast. (laughs) Yeah. Um, in a molish fashion, but that, that scene that it's a really, um, you know, obviously, dramatically low scene comes right after one of the most joyful scenes in the whole film of the the handful of American prisoners who have put on this big 4th of July celebration and are kind of inviting all the British soldiers over and they're all kind of, you know, poking fun at each other and stuff like that. Um, I love the line where he says, how are you getting along without us? <laughs> and the Americans are like, we're doing just fine. Um, but they, they have this big party uh, with this moonshine that they've made and then right at the end of that, there comes this really, really low beat, um, which is a good way of just keeping interest going and not letting one emotion or kind of carry for too long. Especially you don't want the, the high beats to carry for too long because you're in a prison movie and a World War II movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is the, the stakes are high from the get-go based on just like our public knowledge, our common knowledge of the situation. Um, yeah right like it doesn't they don't have to do too much of proving that uh you know there is a death threat every second yeah yeah exactly like you can just assume it and kind of roll with it it doesn't have to be like the mole is almost a red shirt but not really because he didn't have to die for us to realize that there is a legitimate danger here Yeah. yeah 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 he actually had a pretty interesting character arc where um, that I think yeah, wasn't like super duper fleshed out in the sense of like men, it, man isn't meant to be in captivity and it does something to, to people to take away their freedom 
to that much of a degree. Like it, it's, yeah. it's damaging. He's the only character who has that kind of an arc where he's just completely demoralized by being in prison for so long. So that, that is the element that he brings to the film. Um, which I think is, is really good. And then, uh, we have Where's Steve the McQueen. Where's French-Canadian guy just comes along to be French? <laughs> yeah, I know. There's so many just, like, little, like, there's an Aussie uh, played by James Coburn, who I just always think of as a cowboy. Um, and then he's an Aussie in this movie. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and Steve McQueen, who's just the cocky American, literally just standing in for all Americans. Um, and then tons of, of uh, great British actors in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, and this is an important movie in, in Steve McQueen's career, right? This is kind of early in it, and he does all of these amazing, amazing motorcycle stunts. And you can tell that those stunts, um, besides just being cool and seeing this big-ass landscape and seeing how close Switzerland is but how far away it is through that barbed wire, yeah. you, know, you can tell it's all written for him. It was all put in for him. Um, and to get uh, that I young think I saw that he... I think I saw that he requested that <laughs> to be able to to do the motorcycle stuff um, just to show it off, which he did do all the motorcycle stuff himself, except for the very last jump, which was a stunt guy. Um, but yeah, I think all of that was just him being like, come on, guys, you gotta, you got to get me on a motorcycle in this movie somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked out. Right. I mean, it's it's definitely the most exciting part. I think. uh a lot of the posters are just Steve McQueen on a motorcycle, which made me think going into the movie that he was going to jump out of the prison on a motorcycle, which is not exactly exactly the case. No, that but, uh, would have been very, still very, really very, cool very difficult. That would have been cool, though. Um, yeah. I like that one of the things that I thought was really impressively done in this movie is, one, it's, it's based on very, very, very factual events. Um, I don't know exactly mm -hmm. how accurate they are. I didn't do a lot of investigating into that. Um, Obviously, Hollywood probably did some Hollywood stuff to it. But uh, yeah. because of that, you're dealing with very specific states. You have to explain what the Geneva Conventions are, and you have to explain, like, what this camp is and who these people are and why they're trying to escape while they're trying not to escape. Who are all these people? What, what you know, Richard Attenborough has a scar, but we also get this exposition, exposition about him being super dangerous and a very, very high uh, escape risk. Uh, for the for the Nazi uh, prison guards. Um, well, that's one of the but things. But we did it is, all um, through Nazis, which is something yeah. I've noticed in a lot of these movies we've been watching. Is that Nazis just work great for exposition? The same thing happened in Patton. One because it's yeah. interesting. We get to flip across the line real quick and see what the what the opposition is doing. Um, but two because they're typically discussing this with one of the POW officers. Most notably at the start of the film, they're having all these discussions with the British officer whose name escapes me, but he's notable because he walks with a cane and therefore is not eligible for escape. Um, yeah. Because it's coming through that, that, that contention, there's conflict in the scene which distracts the audience from the fact that you're just feeding them all of this information by spoonfuls um, and just getting it all out there really quickly at the beginning in a really interesting scene because there's heads butting uh, but not in a scene that feels like, here's the plot, sit through all this exposition. Yeah, right. One of the things that I think is interesting about this movie is that in 1963, uh, World War II, which still, it's, it's 
much less so now, but it was very much in living memory in 1963. Uh, in fact, so much to the point where several of uh, the actors in this film had actually fought in World War II, so they had firsthand knowledge. Like, notably, uh, the guy who who uh, goes blind, um, uh, Donald Pleasance, I think, he, w he had been a pilot in World War II, had been shot down and spent a year in a German prison camp. So he understands the act actual situation that that uh, they're portraying here. I think James Gardner had fought in the Korea War. Um, so there's there's a lot of these um, people were so close to the actual events of the film that I think that probably helps in the way that they're able to portray, uh, you know, prison life and uh, being soldiers and stuff like that, because this is uh, almost, you know, it's, it's not too far of a line between the acting and the just uh, remembering kind of a thing, uh, which I think is really interesting because the only time that we're going to see, uh, you know, at least specifically World War II movies that have that amount of um, realism injected into them are from that era or before. Like we're, the farther we get from World War II, the less of like, first-hand knowledge we have to put into our depictions of it, uh, which yeah. is which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, co it definitely colors the portrayal of the events. Um, yeah. I think the only way to get more real is to literally be Rossellini making movies in Italy <laughs> as it's being recaptured from the Germans. Um, yeah, which we're going to talk after. about next time. Stay tuned. Yeah, in which they literally just like pulled random people of certain nationalities through from the street to play certain parts. Um, yeah, hashtag Italian neorealism. Yep. But yeah, I mean, as far as the actual events that did happen, uh, like we said, there it was Hollywoodized, um, and but a lot of it uh, is pretty factual. So each of the characters is basically like a. Um, a melding of several of the uh, actual people who were um, captured in uh, Stalag 3 or whichever prison camp that they were in. Um, and so there's there's like some little differences, like um, they added a little bit more um, American involvement to suit the American uh, audience, because I think most of the Americans had been transferred out of the prison right before the escape actually happened. Yeah, it was almost um, all, all, all British officers. Right, right. Um, and uh, so, like, like, little things like that, but there was actually a time when uh, a, a, a group of the surviving, the surviving survivors of the Great Escape... Um, Went back survivors. to the prison camp <laughs> and watched this film. Um, and while they were like, yeah, some of the stuff at the end, like it's not exactly how it happened. They were like at the beginning, like the prison life stuff and the the escape digging and stuff like that. That is actually pretty accurate, um, which is interesting. Another thing that I think is interesting is just from some basic research. There were actually several um, anti-Nazi guards at the camp that helped them out and, you know, actually... Uh, did stuff for them. We kind of see it in the film as James Gardner's kind of coercing guards into helping, but some of them were not uh, very averse to helping these guys get out and escape because they were actually against the Nazis, um, which is something lives, that you don't man. see too much. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a thing. Not every 
not everyone in a uniform was completely committed to Hitler's ideals. Um, so that's that's just another element to keep in mind when watching mm-hmm. uh, these kinds of movies and thinking about uh, the the interactions and dynamics of World War Two. Yeah, of course, a lot of it was completely accurate, including the ending, which I guess minor spoiler alert. Um, was what they did there was a war crime committed when 50 recaptured officers were all executed yeah yeah which is so rough and that's a that's one of the the one of the like hardest and i think most affecting scenes of the whole movie is when they're telling the guy with the cane that 50 were killed while escaping or 50 were shot while escaping um and he asks when they were going to be back and then the German officer just repeats, 50 were shot while while." Escaping. No, he asked, he asked uh, how many were wounded. Or how many were wounded. And there were, there were no wounded there. Yeah. Mm. And, but you can actually tell in that scene, which I think is also one of the, one of the really interesting nuances is that the, uh, the Nazi prison guard, like almost yeah, chokes on those words as he says them. Yeah. The He's, Luftwaffe he, like, officer struggle. clearly did not sign up to be a war criminal. Yeah, but that's that's yeah. the side he's on. So yeah, I mean it's it's epic and uh, it's really interesting. It's it's not like straight action, but all of the all of the stuff that it's leading up to it builds really well. And then the after the escape happens, like all that, like the whole ending scene is just so tense as we watch the escapees try to you know once you've escaped, you have to still escape Germany, and that turns out to be even harder than escaping the prison. So yeah. there's um, actually, there's actually a really interesting sensation to that sequence because we both as both the characters and we as an audience have been confined to that camp for two hours uh, yeah. of the movie. And then suddenly you're just you know, you're feeling that rush of excitement of finally seeing scenes outside of it. Um, you're as just as eager to be out of there as the characters are. Um, yeah. And it's also it's notable that even though um, uh, Steve McQueen is kind of our our American eyes through the throughout the film, when he escapes the first time to get the map of or and chart out the the nearby town, we don't go with him. We're still stuck in the prison with everyone else, just waiting for him to come back. So that really is the first time we leave the prison. Uh, for the entire movie. Yeah. And of course, this movie is, you know, certainly a classic, um, if not for the fact that so many people know about it or heard about it, um, then for the fact that so much of it has been um, appropriated into other movies throughout the years. I mean, just think about, like, you know, Steve McQueen bouncing a baseball off of a wall in a cell. How many times have we seen Mm -hmm. something like that copied? Um, Or, you know, this is a setup for, like you said, Heist movies, which we've already talked about the invention of heist movies, but obviously this plays a big influence back into those uh, prison break movies, prison break shows moving forward. Um, And obviously, as we mentioned at the very top of this section, Recess. Uh, I mean, it's already made its way down (laughs) to to kids TV. Um, So it is certainly influential and certainly a classic and worth the watch. Um, Absolutely. So, but now let's move on to a film with uh, zero Hollywood gloss. Come and see from 1985. Jason, take it away. Come and see 
from 1985. In 1943, the Nazi Germans invade the Soviet territory of Belarusia, and soon a boy named Freya finds himself swept up in the action and absolute horror of World War II. Without much agency and in the constrained viewpoint of a youth having their innocence ripped away, Freya is hurled into the partisan Russian army. He meets fellow soldiers and a young woman named Galasha and watches as his world falls apart in a series of fighting, war crimes, and other terrors. Come and see shows the experience of war you can hardly imagine without seeing it. All right, Jonathan, I had not seen this movie before, but it is actually one of those movies that I, we, if you look through for lists of like the top 250 films on Letterboxd, top 100 films mm-hmm. on IMDb, it's on like all of those lists. And after watching it, it's all, I understand yeah. why. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things about it is the viewpoint through which both the events and the film uh, from our audience perspective is experienced. It's incredibly limited and narrow down to a child. Yeah, who's thrown yeah. into a war. You kind of get a sense of it coming, but we actually see events that feel incredibly like the end of the world in a way that I don't think a lot of war films truly capture. Like that absolute yeah. just breaking and shredding a, down of humanity in this yeah just in a psychological way. way yeah yeah just just things like just atrocities left and right um, war crimes left and right the panicked un you know you don't know, you have no clear idea of what's going on for most of this movie he's drafted into the army yeah. he's thrown into it but for a lot of it he's just wandering around from thing to thing cl- clinging to whatever sense of order or like anything would point him in the right direction throughout the course of the yeah. film. But he's just, he he's just through flailing. denial and confusion and, and everybody else and, is just, yeah, everyone else is just falling apart too. And suffering. I think the thing that surprised me the most is cause I, I had been, I mean, we put this on here because it keeps coming up on, on lists of best war films and stuff like that. And I heard about it for a long time, but I think I expected more of a brutality like, uh, Saving Private Ryan or even like we'll see in the Thin Red Line where it's a lot of uh, battle back and forth and casualties and stuff like that. But that is not what makes Come and See brutal. What makes Come and See brutal is showing the absolute and utter inhumanity of the way that Nazis treated people that they did not see as human or as of deserving human dignity. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, as they marched their way through Russia um, and got however far they did. But as they went, they would burn towns and they would slaughter everyone in them. Um, And so we're seeing, yeah, so we're seeing Nazi atrocities, which from the Russian point of view, which is different because we see a lot of, um, of those inhuman acts through the Holocaust, which we're going to, you know, get into all of that a little bit later in the series. But this is a, a point of view that you don't see that often, but still it's that it's the 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 baseness of it and the coldness of it. Um, and uh, like it just makes you question throughout the whole thing, like what kind of a a value system and worldview would permit this kind of thing? And, you know, even as it goes through getting a little bit more towards the end, you hear the classic Nazi remarks. Well, they told us to do it. Well, he's the guy in charge. Well, you know, 
it, we were just doing, you know, whatever. And then finally one of the Nazis stands up and just like lays out the Nazi point of view. He's like, you don't deserve to live. I don't feel bad at all for what, what just happened. Um, and as he's staring down, uh, all of these people who he is just directly affected by, you know, the, the crux of this film is around the, the raising of a village. Um, R A Z E. Uh, and yeah, literally the opposite of the other way you can say that word. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So I, if I always feel like I have to clarify English when I say that. Hard language, that's why. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then all the people who uh, end up surviving that uh, capture the Nazis and, you know, confront them. And uh, I mean, you can kind of, you basically just imagine what happens after that. But yeah. it does present the the whole philosophy of the Nazis but it also presents the um, real life consequences and real life uh, results of that philosophy in in a really intimate and again like, I don't know what other word to use than than just brutal uh, yeah it, it is it portrayal. is literally the end of the world this is the best apocalypse film I've ever seen it's is captured the breakdown <laughs> right. of human society better than anything I could ever and imagined it's not and it's in the, the shocking thing is it's real and that's probably the scariest yeah. thing about it um and like it literally is and, and they really go into that sense of this is the apocalypse i mean the name is from the book of revelations um hitler is made into the apocalyptic horseman of death over the course of the film they literally take a skeleton um, and carry him around and then they cover him in like mud and hair in a way to make him look like Hitler. Um, it's a really, yeah, you progressively. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like people going, it, there's so many visuals in this film that are so disturbing. And then there are sequences that just flow and they kind of distract you from what's going on. And then you're thrown right back into it again. The, the flow of this movie is brilliant. Um, in how disorienting it is and then every time you start to get a little confused you're just smacked in the face with something even worse than the last scene you just saw yeah it's 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 real bad it's real bad um even certain things are hidden from the protagonist but are just barely caught by us such as like the the pile of dead bodies probably his family yeah. behind the cabin um, that the girl turns and sees for a split second as he's running away. I mean, he knows it, but he's in denial. Yeah, he and she even wanna... says that a little bit later on. Like, um, she says he's he's deaf. He's deaf, which he physically is from the bombing uh, at that point. But it's also he's trying to shut it out and ignore it, um, which is kind of the only thing you can do at that point. So the the other thing, uh, if you are looking for a frame of reference, which is also a really obscure frame of reference. But the the style is very Tarkovskian, um, which makes complete sense coming from uh, Russia. But I think there was even there was a scene where he was looking into a well, which reminded me of a scene from Yvonne's childhood because Yvonne's childhood is probably you know next to this film as in terms of putting war atrocities through the eyes of a child, um, which you know puts all of war in a completely different perspective when you're looking at it through uh, the eyes of youth and not the eyes of, like, hardened soldiers and stuff like that. Um, you know, thinking of, like, Nick Nolte's character in the next movie we're going to talk about. Uh, but, you know, seeing it through the eyes of innocence 
And then that's basically what this movie ends up being is a loss of innocence uh, throughout it. But that loss of innocence transcends this one kid and kind of turns into a, uh, um, a, a cultural and national loss of innocence almost in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it does feel like that for sure. It is, it is essentially a coming of age film, except way more brutal than any other coming of age film you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, and by the end he takes a stand and you see him fully commit to joining It's Not that he was ever really on the fence. It's just that he was kind of going along with the crowd at the top of the film, physically being drafted into the partisan army which was resisting, but by the end he was. Full well, he bore. was. He was kind of excited about it at the beginning. Yeah, but they he were, was excited about it in the way a little kid is. He's like, "I'm gonna go." He was naively, play yeah, a, naive, play a, very play a naive. War. Yeah, um, but by the end he's like, "This guy is the devil." He like literally t- shoots a portrait of Hitler he sees on in a puddle. Um, yeah, that scene is so he good. Is now a he's now a hardened member of the partisan army and is ready to resist. Um, yeah, which is, and then as the film ends, there's like this, um, the, the music is almost kind of, I don't know. I'm sure that it has much more significance if you're Russian, but it's kind of this, this big, uh, choral, um, song that, uh, feels like a big kind of national rallying cry. Um, as you see the, the partisans kind of walking off into the forest, just kind of prepared to keep resisting um because that's that's all there is at that point um but yeah he he definitely goes from kind of you know i want to have a gun and and be a soldier to realizing how horrifying that is to realizing he needs to be a soldier because to do anything else is to allow the end of the world um so man (laughs) there's so much in this movie but that that scene where he shoots the portrait of Hitler is we've seen lots of films uh, so far that use footage from Triumph of the Will, because like I, as we talked about off air one time, you know, Triumph of the Will gave the world the best uh, professionally shot footage of the Nazis. And it's just there for the taking. And so the way that they use the footage though in this film is probably the most creative and impactful that I've seen. Cause as he's shooting this portrait of Hitler with a machine gun, you're seeing all the atrocities of war through the Holocaust and then through the battle and then through like the, uh, even the national socialist rally from triumph of the will. And it, it just goes backwards and backwards and backwards, almost like he's trying to undo everything by this, this act of rage. Um, and then it ends with what I can only assume. I haven't actually looked this up, but I assume it's actually a portrait of Hitler as a baby. Um, Would you go back in which, time and kill Hitler as a baby if you could? That's literally the question that this film raises. Uh, and I, after, by the time you're done with this movie, there is no other answer than heck yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it makes it makes a big stand that this is this is some real bad real bad stuff it is um and kind of gives you know it kind of gives that experience of people uh, kind of gives a semi-civilian experience of the war too 
right? Like these guys wouldn't be fighting. This Parson army wouldn't be a bunch of fighters. They're not a bunch of fighters. You yeah. see them at the top of the movie. They they are not a hardened army, and not even close. They get there kind of it by the end of the movie, and it gives this interesting experience of you know, not just a boy, but a whole people who have their innocence stripped away and are forced to become hardened people who corner and burn Nazis. Um, yeah, which despite the evilness of the the Nazi regime that is a dehumanizing thing to do even if the people you are burning alive are evil and dehumanized in their own right having to kill is something that fractures yourself um yeah so these these are broken people by the end they are transformed in this terrifying terrifying way over the course of the movie i think there's a really interesting image is really good very (laughs) oh it's gorgeous they use um, a lot of really great f- distortion shots, those close-up wides that I actually was literally kind of bitching about in King's Speech. But in this movie, <laughs> they make perfect sense. Yeah, and they they do like this really interesting kind of use of the vertigo um, uh, push zoom when they're taking a photo of the whole um, regiment that's about to get uh, kind of obliterated. Um, but... There's, there's also this really interesting image at the very beginning of the film. Because the film opens with uh, our main character, um, F- uh, Floria, who uh, wants to join the army. And I guess not his little brother, but like a, a, a younger friend um, who's not really old enough to join the army. And they're digging around on – they're digging around in this sand where there's a bunch of uh, – dead bodies trying to get a gun so that they can join. Um, and there's an, there's a moment, it's like a really kind of surreal way to open the film in the way that it's shot and presented. And then there's a shot of the little boy in like full uniform with a bone in his mouth. And he makes like a really weird barking sound. And that image kind of just starts the whole movie with this idea of, again, the, the dehumanizing effects of war. Just being in the soldier's uniform is kind of a debasing uh, place to be. And I think that there's a lot of really interesting, subtle uh, images like that throughout the film. Um, there's, I just saw, uh, just doing a quick just scan on Wikipedia, one reviewer uh, used the phrase that the, the film was made with an angry elegance, which I think is a really apt description of the movie yeah no it, it really really is um yeah this is one of those movies where i was pulling stills and it was hard to n- really narrow it down it was yeah everything was just beautiful everything seemed perfectly timed which is a crazy thing to say because everything is also horrifying um yeah but it, it it worked yeah it's it's really hard to describe without because because what the film does is it gives you a feeling. And we've talked about films like that before, but it it really just kind of makes a mental impression on you by the end in a way that is hard to describe without just sitting down and watching it and going through the whole thing. So, oh boy. Um, yeah, so let's move on to our final film of the day, uh, going back to some American filmmaking in a very different vein than The Great Escape, The Thin Red Line from 1998. Uh, set it up for us, Jason. The Thin Red Line from 1998. U.S. Army Private Wit 
is picked up and arrested from an island of a carefree Melanesian village. From there, he is shipped off with the rest of his squadron to Guadalcanal to secure Hill 210, providing the space for a key airfield in the Pacific War. All of that fades away as the company slogs its way up the hill, losing member after member to desperate Japanese resistance. Wit and the other soldiers face their nature as living beings, ones who do not want to die, and who are suddenly faced with the imminent event. Wit himself thinks about the woman he left behind. A line is towed between thought and action as the soldiers fight to move the thin red line. Okay, um, as much as I really like the use of voiceovers in this movie, uh, am I the only one that thinks Jim Caviezel's southern accent is really kind of schmaltzy? It's pretty schmaltzy, yes. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. I have, I, have a, I have a tolerance level of voiceovers in Terrence Malick films, and it ends when the accent gets too extreme or when they start whispering. Yeah, there was that's, some that's it. There was yeah. some really good use of voiceover in this movie, but occasionally yeah, like the very first one uh when Jim Caviezel starts, I was like, oh, "Okay, that southern accent is like really laid on thick." Um which is kind of the point, although like I guess half of the soldiers in this regiment are southern. Um uh but yeah, this is this is a battle film that is philosophical and beautiful and brutal all at the same time uh, in a way that a lot of uh, American battle movies usually aren't. They usually kind of try to focus on the brutality element and the, the action element uh, without asking too many questions. And this film is all about asking questions. Yeah, yeah, it very much is. Um, it almost feels more like a three-hour poem, kind of, than it does, and that's actually a lot of modern Malick films. I felt that way about Hidden Life too, like especially yeah, with definitely. his use of essentially prose poetry in the voiceover yeah. slot, which is a very but that's, something very that's a unique lot different. To him. Yeah, in in a Hidden Life, it was a very kind of slow subject about this peasant being taken away and. Uh, just, you know, having to stand up for himself over and over and over again. But when you put that same kind of poetry into uh, a battle where people are being shot and blown up and still trying to get that grittiness and um, uh, just rawness of battle and then adding to that poetry and beauty, it's it's a really weird mix, but Malik makes it work really well. It does. It does. It does. I, a lot of the reviews that I read, I, I ended up on this kick where I was reading reviews of this movie from um, from the time it came out. Yeah, from 98. And a lot of people were like, I really liked it. It felt a little schizophrenic. It felt like it didn't know what it in itself was about, but I really liked it. And I think that comes from the, the fact that it is supposed to essentially be more of a question. Like it's supposed to provoke thought more than it is meant to present answers of a yeah. sort. Almost every voiceover is a character asking questions of themselves as they go through, which sometimes felt a little um, disjointed to the characters themselves. Like Nick Nolte's uh, voiceovers at the very beginning are very kind of introspective. And he's thinking about like, you know, what is what does a guy have to do to get ahead? How many people does he have to step on and that kind of thing um which makes you feel like he's a very kind of introspective and recent character and then he ends up 
kind of being the antagonist. Uh, I mean, as much as you can within the same ranks in a war movie. Um, but so that was interesting because it's it's showing multi facets of his character, but also those introspective voiceovers from Nick Nolte kind of drop off uh, towards the middle parts of the film. Um, and they're, you know, I think uh, Jim Caviezel's uh, character is probably the main character, although that's kind of hard to say in this <laughs> that's <laughs> such huge, a, that's such an accurate ensemble. <laughs> He's probably yeah. the main character. I don't know for sure, kind of, but maybe. Yeah. Also, there was like, given the amount of gigantic names in this film, um, I was surprised at how much trouble I was having with face blindness <laughs> with all these uh, white no, American that soldiers. Happens, that happens every time, not only when there's a lot of white people, but when they're all in the military, too, because they're literally in uniforms, all their hair yeah. has been cut, they're wearing helmets, it's... There are a couple of them that are easier to pick out than others, but sometimes I was just like, wait, wait, which one are you again? Yeah, it's 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 a lot. Yeah, so, I mean, from the very beginning, the film starts uh, in this kind of idyllic, dreamlike kind of a state, uh which is kind of a metaphor for the the quote-unquote better place or other world that uh, Jim Caviezel is trying to get to and get away from the war. Uh, and then we get into the battle, and uh, it takes a while to kind of figure out what exactly the battle is going to be until uh, we get down to the nitty-gritty of... Um, I, basically what it comes down to is Nick Nolte's general wants to take this hill at whatever cost, but he's not there. And, um, <clears throat> the, the captain who is there, uh, doesn't want to sacrifice all his men because he sees another way that might be a little bit slower. Uh, but he thinks it's better and he's going to take that way even against direct orders. Uh, so that kind of becomes a battle. And then Nick Nolte realizes that he was right in the first place. Um, the, the other captain, um, and I'm not sure if I'm using all of these uh, ranks right, but uh, you'll kind of get the point if you've seen the movie. And so there's this this power struggle, there's this authority struggle, um, and then once we finally get up to the hill, there's uh, the aftermath kind of a thing. So we've been seeing American soldiers uh, get killed all the way trying to storm the uh, storm the hill, and then... By the time we get up there, then the Americans are, you know, dealing with the Japanese directly. Uh, and we've talked we talked about a little bit in the propaganda episode or maybe just in the bonus, but uh, about this idea that it's it's easy to make Hitler the bad guy of the German parts of the war. But it was harder to have like a single thing to pin the battle against the Japanese on. And so a lot of times the Japanese would become stereotyped or the Japanese people would be the enemy and that kind of thing. Um, and this movie does it. It's interesting because the, the, the film focuses mostly on the American army. And for like the first almost half of the film, you don't see any, you don't see like the faces of any Japanese soldiers at all. Um, and then when we get up there, we're seeing the Americans be brutal to the Japanese. Uh, and I think one of the, one of the most striking parts of the movie to me was, when we see a fallen Japanese soldier and we get a voiceover from the fallen Japanese soldier, uh, basically bringing up those questions of, do you think you were better than me? You think I didn't try to live a good life? Um, you know, 
asking all these kind of, uh, you know, traditional war questions of who has the right to live, the victor or the, the victim, like who gets to decide that. Um, and when you're on that really nitty gritty soldier level, there's really no, no good answers. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's really not. It doesn't feel, and it doesn't feel like what they're doing is really connected to a larger conflict, especially because it's narrowed yeah. down to such a small, small portion We're of really a disconnected battle. from the big picture. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and you know, it was interesting because I, I've seen this movie before, but I never stopped to consider what battle this was a part of. And then I paid attention and I realized this is Guadalcanal, which is commonly seen as like the turning point or one of the big turning points in the Pacific War when the Americans started winning. Um, and actually the mm-hmm. airstrip they're securing is incredibly important to the war effort. But it doesn't feel like that because they, they, they don't when you're on that hill just pushing to fight for that little line on a map some commander's worried about you're not worried about that you're thinking about your life you're thinking about your loved ones you're thinking about the fact you might die charging up that hill um and for what reason what purpose why you know as as the narration says i think approximately 200 times why (laughs) yeah right um yeah and you're right that that thin red line which is kind of what the whole movie is about is you know it it looks all all clean cut on a map, but once you're actually, you know, trying to do that, what does that mean? What does that mean on an individual, personal level? Um, what does that mean for the people uh, associated with those soldiers? You know, all of that kind of stuff. You know, as we see um, the, the one, I don't even remember which one, the one soldier's uh, marriage kind of falls apart just because he's gone. You know, not even because of anything that he did. Uh, yeah, that's um, a vicious, like, Dear John letter he gets. It's yes. it's really polite, but that's, like, what makes it so bad. <laughs> yes, that... I. It's so, like, not what the whole film is about, but it's such, like, a little personal loss that feels so intense and feels almost more intense well, than it devi- it devastates. It devastates us. Well, yeah, that's a, that's the point. That's the point is that it um, right. that the the that's the conflict doesn't really matter to these guys on a personal level. They care whether or not they survive, and we're seeing whether why yeah. they care whether or not they survive. And we've been seeing all these flashbacks of this woman he's in love with, and we are forming our own assumptions about her based on everything else that we've everything that we've seen. How he feels about her, we're getting her entirely through his memories and then that letter kind of snaps this out reminds us that she's not that person she she might have been at one point there is the setup which setup there is a setup for it at the very beginning um someone asks him uh you know why are you just a private when you used to be uh a captain or whatever again i don't know the how the ranks work but he says because (laughs) my wife because (laughs) um okay he cool. says, because, because my wife uh, didn't want me to be gone for that long. We'd never been separated. And when I had all these responsibilities, I had to be gone all the time. And she didn't like that. And so now I'm just like an, an ordinary soldier and I have more time. So there's kind of this setup that she has problems being separated from him. It's very subtle. And then 
at the end we realize, oh, like she really has problems being separated with him for some reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it is, it is the literally in the moment what's happening is his 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 life ends when he reads that letter. He doesn't die yeah. in battle. He dies when he reads that letter. When he when he perceives that his wife has made him into a write off essentially. Yeah, it's almost one of those things. I felt like um, going back to an unrelated movie, uh, Lethal Weapon, where at that point he has nothing to stop him from doing something crazy and, uh, you know, semi-suicidal where, you know, he can. It, it makes it easier for him to do something that would put his life on the line at that point, because after this, his life is completely different anyway. Uh so it's it's just all these these things that are building up, you know, inside of the battle, outside of the battle. It does a really good job of fitting so many different perspectives into one movie um, and still feeling cohesive. It does. It does. And part of that's the reason that's three hours long. <laughs> right. Yeah. This one is also three hours long. Yeah. Lots of long movies over this subject. But that kind of makes sense. It's deep. Um, and there's a lot mm-hmm. to tackle. It's and, and the more time that goes by from it happening, the more solemn we treat it. The more it becomes kind of not just not just history. It becomes legend, myth. It becomes important and vital to to how we how the perceptions of it that we have become more and more important, more and more sacred in a way yeah. on a social level. Um, and it becomes more important to not let it fade you know the the urgency of the memory of this event becomes more uh felt as time goes on because uh if it does fade then there's nothing stopping it from happening again but the more we can see how terrible this thing was from every possible point of view the the more likely it is to be prevented in the future yeah oh yeah for sure you know what jonathan one of the things that i found really interesting in this movie especially in the way it treated you know the concept of fighting for these men is how excellently shot and choreographed the fight scenes are you know mm-hmm. it is you could easily get the have the camera and the audience be lost in all of this long grass um which they do intentionally sometimes. Sometimes they do that intentionally, but it's used. It's very consciously used. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they do a really by, good by job. The director. Of, you have a very clear idea of what's going on, where, where you are, through combination yeah, of geography, cinematography, really narration, all of that. It's put together, and it makes for some really good action sequences. Even if you aren't here for the narration and the, the philosophical wondering, the action sequences are really phenomenal, um, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and there's so many little moments throughout the action that feel so real because they're so big and inconsequential at the same time. So I'm thinking of, like, the instance where there's a soldier um, who's been shot and he's screaming uh, for help, but the, the spot where he is is, like, heavily covered by fire, and one of the medics is like, I- I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go help him. And he runs out there, and as soon as he gets there, he gets shot down immediately. Um, and then another soldier goes out to help him and actually gets there and, and hands him the morphine, but he can't pick him up and bring him back. So he literally just has to leave him there with the morphine and and go back to safety because, you know, 
having three people die over him, you know, trying to uh, fix his wounded leg is is not worth it. And so there's so many just little instances like that that, uh, you know, are just they're just war. That's just how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it's a series of impossible decisions that yeah. the characters are faced with. And in it being a series of impossible decisions, it's a ripe, ripe planting ground for philosophical questions, which I think is what Absolutely. attracted Malik to it in the first place. Because that really does seem like the guy kind of guy he's in. He, he <laughs> yeah, is. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, here's a here's a quick question, Alex. Um, mm-hmm. Why is the thin red line kind of uh, obviously it is it is still uh, hailed as one of the great war movies and stuff like that? But why do you think it is one of those ones that people can't kind of wholly get behind? Kind of like Saving Private Ryan and stuff like that. Like it it's so close to being an award-winning film it's so close to uh being a classic film and yet it's kind of just fallen by the wayside of other big war movies from america and from other countries when thinking back on on world war ii films uh you know i think part of the reason is the that part of the reason is that malik makes his movies for him very much so. Yeah. He doesn't really make them for anybody else. Um, you know, they're long. They're a little slower. They're a little more philosophical. If you haven't had a cup of coffee beforehand, you might fall asleep during it. <laughs> Even like during something like this that's so impeccably choreographed and set up, there's a lot of just slow thinking Downtime. time added to the movie so that you can have those same thoughts the soldiers are having, have those same thoughts that Malik is having, um, or, or trying to answer the same questions he's trying to answer, um, that it just doesn't grab and pull you back in the same way that other three-hour yeah. movies do. Like Schindler's List is another three-hour movie that is way, I think, probably more much more popular than The Thin yeah, Red Line. Definitely. But... You know, in, in, in something like Schindler's List, there is a stand taken. There is a certain... There is, yeah, that's, there's something that's that, true. that you it's, arrive at. It's not a series of questions. It is a story... There's a takeaway. With, with, with a takeaway. That's very... Yeah, right. Very, very definite. And you can get behind that, and you want to see the journey the, the characters take. Um, whereas in this movie, maybe the characters don't really take that much of a journey. Maybe they just die. <laughs> while having a bunch of philosophical questions pinged at them. And that's not... Which makes it realer, but less Which does make it realer, uh, which does exciting. make it more of a thinking movie, but it does make it less of an entertaining movie. And I think, I think no matter where you go or what your thoughts are on movies, you have to... It, the, every single movie has components that are commercial components that are entertainment driven and and components that are artistically driven and if you swing away from any one of those too far you end up with something that is slightly lesser than Um, not unappealing but I think Mm -hmm. the art of movie making is partially the art of trying to balance those different pulls and interests on what a movie can be and I think Malick has definitely just gone full blown artistic all the way, which is great. We need movies yeah. like that, but it's never going to be the most popular movie out there. 
That's true. Especially when there are other films covering the same subject from a more commercial point of view. Yes. Um, so yeah. a- along those lines, follow-up question, what do you think about the use of so many dadgum uh, movie stars? You know, you have Sean Penn, Adrian Brody, Jim Caviezel, uh, George Clooney, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson, Nick Nolte, John C. Riley, and John Travolta, for goodness sake. Like, yeah, really young John <laughs> C. Riley too. Like, it's... Yeah. Before he really uh, becomes I mean, famous for his work with Will, Will Ferrell. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's... Um, it's... It almost seems unexpected looking backwards, but you gotta remember some of these guys did their best work afterwards. Adrian Brody, yeah. John C. Riley, Jared Leto's in this. He's like the first guy who dies. I think. Yeah. Um, but a lot, a lot but of their it's best crazy work comes how many of them work. are big names now. Yeah. Um, I think a lot. Of people Almost in who, the same way that like Black Hawk Down has a lot of like uh, startups who went on to do really big things. Yeah, I think part of it is that this is a. This is a. Very clearly, a, a heavily artsy movie. I think that attracts certain types of actors to it, um, and it also yeah, is you don't always right get that opportunity. For, yeah, it's also very clearly like you read the script, you very clearly think this has a worse potential. And looking at all those nominations, it definitely does, uh, or definitely yeah. did. Um, unfortunately, it didn't win any, but it definitely did. Um, if nothing else, it's it's a uh, prestigious resume edition, you know. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I know it, it definitely is appealing for to actors for a lot of reasons. Um, plus, you get to go act on location. This is a location shoot. You get to work with a, a director who's done some really famous movies who are already in the C- Criterion Collection. Um, one of the most, you know, uh, auteur-skewing film brats of that generation. Um, mm-hmm. It is it is definitely an opportunity for actors, and I think we see that in the the number of people who agree to be in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it it helps with the face face blindness, but it doesn't totally uh, it doesn't totally get rid of it. <laughs> no matter what you do, when you put them all in uniform, they just blend together, which is part of the point. Uh, but and I think that that's having recognizable actors helps helps you remember that each of these are individuals and they're not just statistics, I guess. So yeah, let's talk about all all three of these. This is our war battle film episode. So we've gone, you know, behind the lines uh, in the POW camp. We've uh, had the German invasion coming at us in Russia. And then we've been on the charge in the Pacific in the thin red line. So I think we've covered the gamut of war films. Obviously, we left off some really popular war films like Saving Private Ryan and stuff like that. But this gives a really good idea of the way that war films are approached uh, when it comes to World War II. Um, And... uh, and they're not done being made. We're still making World War II films. So what what have we learned thus far, Alex? Uh, well, action can be all sorts of different. Action is inherently exciting and definitely, I think, inherently treated as a, a heavily entertainment, heavily blockbuster genre. 
But in its meeting with World War II, I think you see that action can also be a heavily thoughtful genre, a genre in which you see physical conflict of humans resulting in philosophical questions um, and larger moral themes at play. And you can treat that in different ways, right? Like in The Great Escape, it's a little more, it's way more entertaining than in the other two um, in terms of the way the action is treating. It's exciting. It's almost like a fun adventure until it's not and you realize that there's big stakes at play. And come and see, the action is terrifying and horrifying and shows you the worst of mankind. In The Thin Red Line, it poses... The physical conflict is well choreographed and interesting to look at, but at the same time, terrifying, but in this existential way that makes you question your own purpose in life. Um, and in those three movies, we also see like the different scopes you can take in a movie. Is it a movie with where you see wide-reaching ramifications, like The Great Escape? Is it something very narrow, like The Thin Red Line, or Come and See, where we see individuals or individual groups and how they're affected mm-hmm. by the action of war. Yeah. And how, how fictionalized is it too? Cause, uh, the great escape is a pretty well-documented event. So is the thin red line come and see is, is more of, uh, a representation of a larger thing that happened. So it's not really like, you know, this is exactly how this one town was destroyed. It's it's like this happened literally at the end of the film. It ends with uh, 600 and however many towns were completely destroyed and all of their inhabitants killed as the Germans marched through Russia. So this is, you know, the, the factuality of come and see is completely irrelevant because it is portraying a uh, an experience had by a lot of people in Russia, um, whereas the Thin Red Line is a specific event, but also showing the general experience of the soldiers um, and the general uh, threats and conflicts and, um, you know, personality clashes on one level and uh, questions of the the morality of war. Like the like the one soldier who, who kills somebody and he says, I just killed a man. It's the worst thing you can do and nobody can touch me for it. Um, and stuff like that. So the the factuality of a particular battle can be, you know, stretched to varying degrees. And depending on the, the point of the film, you know, has varying degrees of actual relevance. Like the more true you can be to The Great Escape, you know, is going to be a little bit more interesting. And especially when the film came out and there's still people who were literally part of that event who are going to be watching the film. Um, and obviously it wasn't completely true, but that's one where the truth matters a little more than come and see and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's the difference between a realistic take on it on, uh, events and a take that's more almost impressionistic where you're seeking to get the point across, but direct accuracy isn't nearly as important. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a question that comes up throughout these of, especially in the more like um, in the fight movies, like come and see in the thin red line of how do you present this experience that especially at this point being so far removed from um, World War Two and other like really large global conflicts like that. How do you present this 
experience and make it felt when most people watching it will not have had any experience similar to it. Um, and I think that they, they both do a really good job of showing both the visceral side of the emotional element, like in come and see, and also the, the, um, the, the, the feeling of, uh, almost irrelevance that like, you know, as one soldier, what makes your fight important and that kind of thing in, in the thin red line. So there's a lot of different perspectives. Certainly. And there's, there's a number of films we didn't even get to today, but you know, obviously these can run, run the gap. I mean, we almost put saving private Ryan in here, which is a Mm -hmm. very different take on action and the purpose of it and gets into, you know, bit of that, why we fight, uh, mentality that we saw in some of the earlier propaganda films that's kind mm-hmm. of a little lacking in something like uh, The Thin Red Line, but is very much there in Come and See in The Great Escape. Like, there's very much a reason to, to why those people are fighting. Um, there's a thousand different ways you can bend it. And, you know, with a conflict like World War II that's so large and so pervasive in, in history and so recent that, you know, it's... It's it's ripe planting ground for discussions like this. Um, yeah, and let's and you, throw out a couple, you know, like f- further watching picks as far as uh, World War II battle films. Ivan's Childhood. Yeah, so we've got Ivan's Childhood, which we've already covered, but then like we didn't even we didn't even talk about D Day today. And there's there's like The Longest Day, which is an American take. There's Overlord, which is kind of a British take, which mixes actual footage from D-Day with a fictionalized account of a soldier. You know, on the Polish side, there's Canal. Um, uh, There's um, Downfall, which I haven't seen yet, but I think that's the one that the the Hitler meme comes from, is (laughs) about the Nazis in their bunker as the war comes to an end. Um, There's some more recent ones like Hacksaw Ridge and... uh, stuff like that. Even the dirty dozen, which is almost the same cast as the great escape and very similar in tone. Cause it's right around the same time. Um, so there's just so many movies that kind of fall into this category that we've tried to cover, um, generally with these three movies, any honorable mentions that you, that you can hmm. think of? No, I mean, you, you, you really just threw <laughs> through a list there. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, they came prepared. Yeah, uh, but there, there are there are plenty out there, um, and plenty more to be talked about in the future. Uh, and certainly, I think some of our uh, some of our next two episodes include actiony movies, but who focus more on different aspects of of World War Two. Um, yeah, but a yes, little bit. You could easily dedicate months and months to just watching World War Two action films. In fact, I think many people Absolutely. do just that. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah, so let's talk about what we are going to talk about next time on the show, uh, which is going to be our second to last episode in the series, and we're going to talk about the drama. So we're going to go a little bit even more um, granular and get to uh, still a couple soldier perspectives, but also getting more into this civilian side. So what are those movies, Alex? Well, next week on the podcast, Jonathan, we're going to be starting off by talking about Paisan, 
from 1946, which is one of Roberto Rossellini's uh, war trilogy films made right at the end of World War II, inclu- mm-hmm. which also include uh, <clears throat> Roma Città Aperta, Rome Open City, which we already did on the podcast back during the uh, World Tour series, and Germany Year Zero. Uh, but Paisan is the one we're focusing on. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Army of Shadows from 1969, which is a French movie directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, um, which depicts uh, the actions of a cell of uh, French resistance fighters during World War II. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about Schindler's List from 1993, Spielberg's epic opus um, to the Holocaust, Holocaust victims and the rescuers of whom oscar schindler is one but many but probably the most famous uh rescuer of the heroic group of people who decided that what the nazis were doing was wrong and sought to rescue as many jewish people men women and children from the holocaust as possible um so it's going to be a heavier week on the show yeah um but that's still not okay. going to be the heaviest week of the heavy. show the that's, last one's that's going to, be to real, come the last one's going to be real bad um, yeah, <clears throat> it's 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 dark, but that's the, that's next week's lineup. So we're going to talk about that next week. Um, Jonathan, for those who want to support the show, what's it, what should they do? Yeah, so you can check us out on Patreon. Uh, we have two tiers. If you want to support us for two dollars a month, you can get access to uh, our community and some behind the scenes content. And if you want to support us for five dollars a month, we have a bonus podcast, uh, which as we've mentioned um our topic several times on this show but the last episode that we just released of the bonus podcast is terrence malick's a hidden life which uh just was released um it's probably just leaving theaters but um that is his uh his film about an austrian uh conscientious objector who refused to join the army after austria was annexed by nazi germany um so very different from the Thin Red Line, but same Terrence Malick uh, style and um, kind of questioning approach. Uh, and also, quick note that we are now releasing all episodes on YouTube. Last week's episode was actually uh, a video episode, so if you would like to see our faces for some reason, you can go and check that out on YouTube. But we are going to be posting um, the podcast on YouTube, even if it's just an audio episode uh, for those of you who uh, consume a lot of YouTube content, content, which I know there are many, many people out there who like to just put YouTube on in the background. So we have provided that as a way to experience our show. We if you should so wish. If you put us on in the background. <laughs> we will be so honored. All right, guys. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I am at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. I, I watched that uh, uh, video essay about um, Recess. That guy really likes Recess. Recess was a really good show. <laughs> I only watched a little bit of it. Um, it. It wasn't one that I had a very good knowledge of, but he like he knows every single episode. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit before <laughs> when I really started watching TV. 
in terms of being yeah. old enough to remember what I watched. Um, right. But it was a really good show. Um, and yes, the theme music for the Disney show Recess is based on The Great Escape. 